Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today, Monique and I will be discussing the overlap between being a neurodivergent woman and trauma. So when we think about trauma, often people think about what we call the big T traumas. Mm -hmm. Um, So that could be, um, you know, having your life at risk, um, going to war, um, witnessing an incident where someone else's life is at risk or they're being seriously hurt. Um, But they're actually other forms of trauma um, that can be as simple as everyday interpersonal interactions or just ways of being in the world that are inherently in themselves traumatic. Mm. Um, And before I go on to talk about that, I'll just backpedal a bit. Um, So trauma is when you have an experience that is too overwhelming for you at the time and you're not able to integrate the experience And so the experience um, is not able to be processed by your brain and your body and that experience becomes stuck in the brain and the body. Um, Monique, can you explain a little bit about what you mean by not able to integrate the experience? So um, one way of explaining it would be um, that the brain has a normal way of processing our everyday experiences that we go through. Um, so it will form memories of certain experiences. And at night, when we have our REM sleep, our brain goes through and processes and puts away those experiences into our long-term memory storage. Um, and they then are experiences that we've fully processed emotionally and cognitively, and they no longer bother us. When something happens that's too overwhelming, that normal process in the brain breaks down and the brain is no longer able to process those memories. Um, and they become, I guess, what I call hot memories. So when you think of those things that have occurred, they really bother you, even if it's something that happened 10, 20 years ago. Um, they're things that if there's a trigger in the now, similar to that memory that hasn't been processed properly, it all comes up for the person um, and those sights, smells, sounds, feelings, thoughts um, that they had in that original situation come up for them and can overwhelm them. So would it be like um, if someone had an experience that was, um, you know, maybe something happened in high school or something in their childhood and then they're sort of, you know, much older and whenever they think about that experience, even as an adult, they still get teary or emotional or feel really angry. Um, would that kind of be like a hot memory? Yeah, that's okay. correct. Or they might have um, really negative uh, thoughts or beliefs, like really blame themselves for the situation when logically it wasn't their fault or there was nothing they could have done about the situation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you're in a hot memory and it's being re-triggered for you, it is very hard for the logic um, to fully sink in because the amygdala in the brain, which is that emotional centre of the brain, um, is sort of overreacting and very sensitive um, in that situation. Mm. And it's hard for the higher order sort of executive functional parts of the brain to um, come in because the brain is in that trauma state. So is it sort of like if you have an experience that is too much for your brain to process in that moment and then it doesn't go through that, um, you know, process of being processed um, when you sleep and sort of either forgotten about or stored away in long-term memory, is it almost like that experience is sort of floating around just kind of infecting um, the rest of your brain sort of just sitting there but it doesn't really have a place to go it sort of can't it's not integrated with what we would consider our narrative or our story or whatever that might be yeah like our beliefs and our we're at in the now basically Mm. um yeah it's this this information that hasn't been integrated um and often there is a level of i guess a bit of dissociation um that's preventing it from being integrated as well um and what that means is that the brain and the body 
um, feel like they're in that fight or flight reaction, even if there is no danger present in the now because the body and the mind are stuck in the past and they're Mm. stuck in that trauma time. Mm. Yeah, I think it's um, really interesting there that you were flagging that um, when something's a hot memory, it's not just um, the emotional intensity that comes up with that. It can also be um, really unhelpful uh, beliefs or thought systems that are around that. Um, and I wonder, you know, do you often find in your work, Monique, that for people finding meaning in what happened and integrating that into their kind of more holistic sense of self and why that thing experience, they experience that thing, what that thing means um, can be part of, you know, managing or working through or processing that more cognitive side of things? Yeah, absolutely. Because when uh, trauma isn't processed, um, we aren't able to make sense of what's happened. So it's really that process of making sense. Um, And sometimes when things have happened to people who are neurodivergent, but they don't know that they're neurodivergent, it's very hard for them to process different traumatic experiences they might have had, whether it's at school or friendships and relationships or in the workplace, because they don't actually have that piece of information that's helping them to make sense Mm. of why that experience might have happened for them and that it's not actually their fault um, and that, you know, they were doing the best they could at the time um, because they're neurodivergent and, um, yeah, that they may have gone through certain traumatic experiences because of being neurodivergent and being different. Mm. Um, So, yeah, Mm. when that key piece of information is missing, um, a person is more likely to be stuck and not able to process trauma. So you were giving us some examples before, Monique, around um, what like big T traumas might look like. So um, those kind of big events that we, you know, would generally conceptualize as, oh, that's a trauma. Um, what are some examples of what little T traumas might look like? So that could look like someone in primary school Um, getting up in front of the class and freezing and not being able to um, do their presentation. And having everyone laugh at them or something. um, Or receiving a negative comment from a teacher or the other children, um, Mm -hmm. like being bullied. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. In families, it can be sometimes being criticised for something that you can't help, such as being too loud um, or not being able to do X, Y, Z like your other siblings can or other mm. family members can. Mm. That's a great example. Um, and I wonder, you know, again, going back to that concept that we touch on so frequently, that sort of person environment fit, um, I feel like sometimes, you know, if you the way you operate is sort of um, not consistent with the family culture, so to speak, um, you know, you just kind of do things a bit differently, that feeling of, either explicitly or implicitly being told, oh, no, how you do things isn't really right. Or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that example you gave Monique around, oh, you need to be quieter. Or mm-hmm. the opposite, you know, why are you so quiet? Mm-hmm. Why don't you talk to this person? Mm-hmm. Um, that feeling of, you know, a mismatch in the family culture. And I wonder in high school, would those sort of little T traumas um, maybe look like things like, um, you know, repeated social rejection, even if it's not, you know, outward bullying per se, that feeling of um, nobody understanding you, passing comments about things, um, having those kind of repeated um, experiences of not fitting in. Mm, Absolutely. I think that feeling of exclusion um, or not belonging or making um, different, I guess, neurotypical social mistakes Mm, um, mm. and then experiencing being punished for those Mm -hmm. um, in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And in the workplace, um, I guess it's sort of much of the same, right? You know, those um, sort of experiences that you can't really quite put your finger on, but you're like, I left that interaction feeling crap. Mm. (laughs) And I'm not exactly sure why, um, but that didn't feel good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sometimes too, um, those sort of, I guess, smaller T traumas can be not just what you experienced or what was done to you, but it can also be what you didn't experience, what Mm. you missed out on. So sometimes people go, oh, I didn't have any, you know, traumatic experiences in my childhood or at school, you know, everything was fine. But um, sometimes looking back on it, it can be um, maybe 
you know, nothing major happened growing up, but um, there might have been some emotional neglect or verbal or, you know, psychological abuse, if that makes sense. And those often aren't um, as picked up on, but there have been studies that have showed that the more subtle, I guess, traumas, um, such as verbal or psychological, emotional abuse, emotional neglect, that those um, are just as traumatizing or damaging as some of the other traumas, such as physical abuse or sexual abuse, Mm. um, which is really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it just goes to show that our psychological needs, no matter who we are, are fundamental to our Mm. kind of health as a person. Um, I'm just thinking about, you know, the sort of intersection, I guess, between sex and gender and neurodiversity, um, race, status, things like that. Obviously, you know, we can kind of extrapolate and make the connection that if you are neurodivergent, it's likely you're probably going to experience a whole bunch of these little t traumas throughout your life. But I'm wondering, you know, if you also say a minority group for other reasons, um, what's the effect or is there any research or understanding on, you know, the the impact of compounding traumas and experiencing kind of multiple different little T's? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The thing with the, you know, little T's is that often they're experiences that people can have every day. (laughs) so if you've had all these little um traumatic incidents that have happened day in day out for years of your life they actually do really impact people um just as much as experiencing say a single incident big t Mm. like maybe a car accident or um you know some sort of robbery or something like that um so Mm. yeah they really do affect people and yeah i think unless you're in those minorities that have experienced negative effects because of being a minority whether it's negative within the medical realm negative within education um within being able to find work it's really sometimes not understanding the impact that that actually has of having those microaggressions every day So I'm wondering, you talked earlier about if there's um, kind of an event or a trauma that the brain finds too overwhelming or too big in that moment in time to process, that then that can sort of become a hot memory. With these sort of little T traumas um, that someone's sort of experiencing day to day, uh, it's not one kind of big overwhelming event. How does that look different in the brain and how is that sort of processed differently? So normally if someone has experienced a lot of little t traumas, um, that can result in something called complex trauma or complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. Whereas if someone, say, had a single incident trauma, um, we would probably more call that PTSD. Um, yeah. And it differs in the level of dissociation. So everybody experiences, you know, some experience of dissociation. It's a normal function that our brain has to protect us. So I guess just an example might be of a very like mild end Mm. of the spectrum of dissociation would be daydreaming. So it's just not being present, um, fully present in your mind, your body in the present moment and, and not, yeah, being able to integrate what does that present moment mean. Mm, okay mm, okay so yeah like the the um simplest form of dissociation would be yeah just that daydreaming so you're in class and you just you know daydreaming off in your head you're not really present in class paying attention and then right through to say if you're an athlete and you're focused on your competition everything else fades into the background and you're just focused on that one thing you know, there is a level of, um, I guess, performance dissociation in that. Yeah. Um, then we might have an emergency situation that someone is in where there is, again, some level of dissociation, but they're able to be present right through to that single incident PTSD. And then further along the spectrum, there's that more 
complex trauma where there is more um, levels of dissociation right through to other dissociative, I guess, disorders. Yeah. It seems to come up a lot that a lot of these ways of coping or managing um, distressing or uncomfortable situations that people are then, you know, maybe coming to therapy for to treat or, or to, you know, find another way of, of coping. Um, these things aren't inherently bad. Mm. And I think it's easy sometimes to feel like some things that our brain does for us is, you know, inherently problematic or a disorder or bad, but basically every single function or coping strategy or, you know, thing that we do in our lives has served a purpose at one point. And I love, Monique, that you were sort of explaining there, um, you know, that we all dissociate Mm -hmm. and sometimes it can be incredibly adaptive and helpful. Mm -hmm. And it's really just around thinking, is this strategy actually helping me at the moment and um, helping me to function or helping me to exist in the way that I want to or is it making my life harder in some way? Yeah, and um, in some situations say a person is still living in a situation where, you know, they're not safe, um, they might need to keep that function going but Mm. it's when the danger is over and it's past that you no longer need, you know, those ways of protecting yourself that's where um, it can probably start to get annoying. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where people want to resolve their trauma and dissociation. They want to be able to move forward mm. with their life. I wonder, do you ever find, Monique, uh, in your clients that often, you know, say if someone's been using dissociation in particular as a coping mechanism, when they are then in a place where they're safe and the threat is not uh, continuing, that they often might experience emotional overwhelm or, you know, have sort of, you know, a bit of a breakdown or feel like everything is suddenly just too hard and they're feeling super emotional? Yeah, so sometimes people can get a delayed response, Mm. which is, I guess, telling you that maybe there is a bit of dissociation or it's just taking time for your brain to maybe process what's happening. So, you know, something might happen for someone that's upsetting and then they might feel quite numb or okay. Mm. And then a few days later, you're then having that emotional response. And yeah, for some people who have um, a lot of T's um, (laughs) in their life, uh, both past and present, they might chronically be in a state of fight or flight. And Mm. that's going to make emotional regulation a lot harder. Um, And I guess traditionally, like neurodivergence, Um, has been seen as, okay, well, you know, people who are neurodivergent do have more difficulty with regulating their emotions. Um, But I just wonder, is that taking into account the level of trauma that they might be carrying as well? Um, Yeah. Because I have had clients where we have done trauma therapy, such as EMDR, and say they had, you know, sensory issues that are part of their neurodivergence. Um, And when we've done EMDR on some of the traumatic experiences that they might have had, their window of tolerance or their ability to tolerate um, different experiences or sensory experiences has actually improved a little bit, which Mm. is interesting. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, And it really speaks to the importance as a therapist and psychologist of really kind of seeing the whole person, you know, because we've talked a couple of times um, on the podcast about the impact of, you know, chronic stress, um, these little teas that we've chatted about today, sort of building up and compounding for neurodivergent women um, and the impact of that sort of high stress level on their ability to do things like, exactly as you say, Monique, tolerate more milder forms of discomfort or be okay with something being stressful or manage boredom or an uncomfortable situation. And it's a great point that we might often think that, oh, well, it's it's a really common trait of someone who's neurodivergent to have a lot of difficulty regulating or managing their emotions, but it's a bit of a chicken or an, and an egg situation, mm. right? Yeah. yeah, of course you have difficulty managing your emotions if you're also dealing with, you know, a, a jug that's sort of getting fuller and fuller and fuller of stress, trauma, things that your brain is trying to manage behind mm. the scenes. 
Yeah. And something that I, I talk to people about as well is it's a cumulative effect. Mm. Um, so say if someone did have, I don't know, um, a pretty traumatic childhood and then they're in situations with ongoing trauma as an adult, um, yeah, at some point your capacity to hold all of that is going mm. to run out. Um, and, you know, if you have neurodivergence on top of that, which is sort of already you don't fit into a world that's not really made for you, um, mm. that's just that extra factor. Whereas there will be people who say maybe they're neurodivergent but maybe they haven't experienced childhood trauma, they haven't experienced that ongoing trauma as an adult, Um their capacity to cope with a traumatic event as an adult might be greater. And, um, yeah, often people come to me, say, in their 40s, 50s, 60s and go, why am I having a breakdown now, mm. you know? Um, and I explain, well, it's just that accumulative effect of um, trauma and, you know, unfortunately, yeah, you, <laughs> you can't cope with it any longer and now yeah. we need to really do some work with that um, yeah. and clear your plate. So, Monique, can you talk us through what your process would be for treating trauma? So I go through a three-phase trauma treatment protocol. Um, Phase one is really getting a history and an idea of what's going on for that person, um, what's happened for them, and doing some stabilization work. So that's really resourcing the person up with a lot of education Um, and looking at certain therapy strategies to help them regulate um, and cope with the now, cope with their life Mm. in the now. Um, So that might involve some CBT or um, mindfulness, acceptance and commitment therapy. Also um, CBT, not to be confused with CBD. (laughs) Cognitive behaviour therapy. Therapy, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good good clarification there. Um, yeah, so just teaching people lots of strategies around managing, say, anxiety, panic attacks, um, sleep, where the symptoms of trauma are affecting their everyday life. Phase two is when the person feels um, stable enough, um, it's the right time to start to process some of the traumatic incidents. So the type of therapy that I mainly use for trauma processing is EMDR therapy, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing Therapy. Love it. Yeah, so it's a bit of a mouthful, but um, it's a relatively newer trauma therapy. It sort of came about in the 80s, but it is... um, yeah, well recognized for treating trauma. So the World Health Organization um, recognizes it as one of the best practice treatments for trauma for children, adolescents and adults. Um, and the other therapy that is best practice is trauma-informed CBT and exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, I find that for people who are neurodivergent, EMDR, probably is a bit more tolerable than straight up exposure therapy. Straight up exposure therapy involves um, like scripting out exactly in detail what's happened, going through it over and over and over for like hours every day. Um, So it's quite intense. Um, And again, this is just like my personal experience, but I've noticed that when I'm working with people who are neurodivergent, um, often they do have a smaller window of tolerance mm. um, and keeping them in that window of their nervous system being able to tolerate the therapy um, can be more challenging mm-hmm. um, and you need to be in that window where your nervous system can kind of, I guess, be with the trauma and be with what happened in the past but also be grounded in the present and be within the window of what you can tolerate that needs to happen for people to actually be able to process trauma. Yeah, so it's like walking that fine line between actually connecting with the experience, um, connecting with the emotions, Mm. connecting with all the thought processes around that, Mm -hmm. but 
not getting so overwhelmed by it that mm-hmm. you're then triggered into meltdown or sensory or overwhelm, panic. panic. Or, yeah. yeah. So like if you're too chill and you're not actually connecting with the traumatic material. <laughs> <laughs> you're cheating. <laughs> yeah. Or you go into, um, yeah, dissociation, then no yeah. trauma processing is going to happen. And that's what that phase one resourcing is about is strengthening your window of what your mind and your body can tolerate, what your nervous system can tolerate. Um, so the EMDR, um, normally is, uh, in my opinion, a bit more tolerable because, um, at the same time as you're going, uh, I guess, thinking about, um, you know, certain aspects of that experience, um, we're doing eye movements or for a lot of my neurodivergent clients, often they prefer using buzzers. Um, so the buzzer will, kind of alternate between your left and your right side of your body like you hold them in your hands Mm -hmm. and buzz 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 um while you're thinking of that incident um and yeah because there is another stimuli there it actually um one theory about why emdr works is that it strains your working memory of the event um Mm and makes it harder for your working memory to hold on to it And then it helps that like memory consolidation and putting it away. And so it turns from being that hot memory into a cold memory where it no longer bothers you. Um, Those symptoms don't come up when, you know, it's re-triggered. So so let's just go back. I'm just Mm -hmm. trying to follow this. Um, So when you say it strains your working memory, Mm -hmm. do you mean that – Basically, your kind of mental bench space just becomes, you know, it's got too much information on it because you've got the kind of buzzing or the physical stimulation that because you're kind of staying with the memory, processing the trauma in the session, your brain really has no option but to kind of store that information away rather than keep it as this sort of nebulous like thing floating around. Yeah, because okay. because you're accessing that material mm-hmm. and you're having to keep your attention on two dual tasks, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it kind of helps desensitize the traumatic incident. Yeah. So it's easier for people to, I guess, um, tolerate mm-hmm. um, that desensitization and it strains, yeah, the brain's working memory in terms of being able to hold that trauma in their mind, Yeah, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's an easier desensitization process because of that dual awareness. Okay. Um, Yeah. So say when someone has um, gone through and processed a lot of stuff um, with EMDR or whatever trauma therapy works for them, then we move to phase three, which is, okay, now that, um, you know, this hot stuff isn't crowding up your everyday life and sapping your energy, then we can start to look at, okay, now that I've processed all of this trauma, who am I now? Mm. You know, who do I want to be? How do I want to live my life? Um, and sometimes it's learning a lot of skills um, that the person might have missed out on developmentally. Um, so things like um, social skills, interacting and maintaining relationships, attachment, mm. Um, mm. being assertive, learning what healthy boundaries are. Because trauma does, I think, sort of take away your sense of self and your ability to connect sometimes. Um, Well, absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah, because you're basically in survival mode. You know, your brain's core drive is like don't let your human die. Um, And so, you know, we might not, as you said before, we might not actually be in a life-threatening situation, but, you know, when we're in that survival mode, our whole brain is just focused on keeping us safe. And if that's happened when you were a child or a teenager, um, there's no real capacity or space left over um, to do things and particularly things that require vulnerability Mm -hmm. because to be vulnerable, a prerequisite of that is feeling safe. You can't be vulnerable without feeling safe. And if you don't feel safe, you can't be vulnerable. And then so you never learn, you know, as you said, Benique, those healthy ways of connecting, setting a boundary, um, you know, opening yourself up to, you know, different relationships. Yeah, and often people don't actually fully realise how much experiencing trauma has affected them. Mm. Um And again, that's part of how trauma works. It disconnects you um, from fully realizing things. Mm. Yeah, I think that word disconnection is a really apt one. Um, And something that I've found um, for neurodivergent women in particular 
is a real disconnection from self, Um, you know, disconnection from that sense of what am I actually feeling about this and what am I then going to do with that feeling? Because, you know, feelings are incredibly valid and important source of information. Um, We might not do what our feelings tell us to do all the time. (laughs) You know, they might need some adult supervision. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also crucially important to listen to them and listen to where they've come from because our feelings obviously just tell us messages. They're just telling us something, source of information. And one emotion that I think gets a really bad rap, particularly for women, and this is socialized, is feeling angry. Mm. Anger is such an important and crucial emotion. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of anger is it's a boundary setting emotion. Mm -hmm. It's to say, I didn't like that thing. I'm not okay with that. And often, you know, when we're not able to actually set, um, physical boundaries or practical boundaries in our life, you know, maybe we're a child and we didn't have the capacity or, you know, we were emotionally overwhelmed or for whatever reason, you know, we actually couldn't set that practical boundary. Um, We often store anger as a replacement for that. Mm -hmm. It's like an emotional way of saying, no, (laughs) this isn't okay. And rather than trying to just quote unquote, get rid of Mm -hmm. that anger. Suppress it. Exactly. Exactly listening to that and hearing it and sitting with that fury, that anger is so important. And I think, you know, for women, um, you know, whether they're neurodivergent or not, uh, but particularly women who are neurodivergent, that sense of, well, how you feel about things is wrong and you actually shouldn't trust your emotion. You shouldn't trust what your nervous system is trying to tell you. Over a lifetime, that leads to this really deep sense of personal mistrust. I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know if that upset me or not. And often just kind of almost being like a mirror and reflecting the people around you, how they're feeling. Well, that person's upset. So that must mean I'm upset or Mm -hmm. that person's feeling okay. So that must mean I need to feel okay. And I think really important part of the process for therapy for adult women who are neurodivergent is learning to actually reconnect with yourself and reconnect with your intuition um, and build that self-trust back up. And that can actually keep you safe because when trauma disconnects you from your sense of self, um, you're told who you are is not okay. Sometimes um, people don't then learn how to set boundaries Mm. or what is and isn't okay behavior to accept from others. And yeah, sometimes people, people can get drawn into situations where they're used or, um, yeah, treated badly because they're not connected with that sense of self or that intuition. I think something that people forget or maybe don't consider is that a boundary has nothing to do with someone else's behavior. A boundary is your behavior. It's what are you going to do when this thing happens? And if you have had, you know, a lifetime of little T traumas, um, I feel like that sense of self-efficacy, like I can actually do something that's going to affect how I feel, how safe I am, what's going on, is just not there. Yeah, and I think um, part of sometimes not feeling like you have that sense of self-efficacy, it can be from your external environment, um, but also uh, felt internally. So we all have a system in our body that tries to keep us safe in certain situations um, and Yeah, it's different states in our nervous system. So most people will have heard the terms fight, flight or freeze. Mm -hmm. Um, And they are just different aspects of our nervous system's response to any sign of threat or danger. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain. But sound and music are actually so helpful. 
What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favorites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like an evening in Jasmine's garden, Merida's mystical Scottish forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like rolling thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription and new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash n-e-u-r-o for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. So, yeah, we have um, four states of being in our nervous system. So um, one way I guess that I might use it as as an example of this is say if you are a deer, okay? Um, Love that for me. Yeah, Bambi. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, say you're a deer, you're with your herd, you feel safe within yourself, you feel safe within your environment, that's when your body is in a state of what we call social engagement. Um, and when you're in social engagement, you're feeling relaxed. You're feeling like you want to interact with the other animals or other people. It's easier to pick up on social cues. Um, yeah. And it's easier to be in contact with that sense of being in a community and compassion for others. And so when, say, a predator approaches that herd, so Mm -hmm. say like a lion, okay, your nervous system will react to that sense of danger or threat and put you into fight or flight. Okay. So when you're in fight or flight, normally what happens is if you were that little deer, first you would try and run away from the lion, Mm -hmm. get out of that situation. So, you know, your heart would pound, you'd start sweating, um, all of the um, blood in your body would mobilize to your muscles to give you that strength and energy to get out of that situation. And then if that survival strategy doesn't work and say the lion catches you, your nervous system's going to switch you to fight, mm-hmm. okay? So you're going to fight for your life. You're going to get out of that situation. So that's where you might start feeling anger or rage. Um, and again, your nervous system's mobilized to give you energy to get out of that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if fight or flight hasn't worked and the line still has you, our nervous system goes into a state of collapse or freeze. And mm-hmm. that's actually designed to protect us from that traumatic experience of being, I guess, eaten alive by a lion. Terrifying. Okay. Yeah, that would be. <laughs> <laughs> so our nervous system goes into freeze. And what happens is, you know, as that deer, we kind of physically collapse. So our mm. blood pressure drops, um, our muscles go slack. You know, this is for the deer. This isn't for everyone, but you might pee or poop yourself. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <Yep. laughs> Which could be traumatic in itself, but yeah. you know, <laughs> um, yeah. So there's a lot of changes in our physical body when we go into freeze, um, and mentally we might start to disconnect. So this is where, um, the person might dissociate, oh, sorry, the deer might dissociate, um, and be like watching itself, I guess, getting eaten. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where we go numb and we're not really feeling what's happening, but you might logically be able to mm. see, oh yeah, this is what's going on for me. Mm. And that is actually a good survival strategy because when there's a predator and you can't get away, you can't fight the predator. Your only option is to get through that experience. Um, sometimes what happens is predators are attracted to prey. So um, if you're not giving them that chase, you know, or that reaction that they're wanting from you and you're playing dead, okay, Mm. um, then sometimes in real life the lion, lions are predators and they don't like eating dead meat. Yeah. So when the deer kind of plays dead, the lion will go, ooh, like I don't want to eat this. And sometimes the lion will actually like stop attacking you and walk away. Yeah. 
And so when that happens, when the danger's gone, our nervous system most of the time will go out of freeze. Mm. And so that deer will shake itself off. It'll go back into that fight or flight and run back to its herd. And then when it reaches um, the herd, its nervous system will again transition into that social connectedness, that safe sort of place. And then they've recovered from that trauma. And, you know, animals are so intelligent because sometimes if that trauma happens, you know, it's like when they're in that safe place, their nervous system has recovered and they're not experiencing those ongoing effects of being stuck in that traumatic place. But what can happen is if our nervous system um, is overwhelmed, um, then even though the danger's passed, our nervous system can sometimes still be stuck in freeze Mm. or it can alternate between fight and flight and freeze, but it's not really going back into that state of social engagement anymore. Mm. Um, And that's where we need maybe some help, like some sort of trauma treatment um, to get back into that state of social engagement or other ways of regulating the nervous system. Yeah, and it strikes me that someone who's experiencing um, like chronic little t trauma is probably going to be more likely to be stuck in those states of fight, flight and freeze Mm -hmm. um, chronically Mm -hmm. because it's almost that sense of, um, well, no, there is no safety. I don't Mm -hmm. feel safe in myself and in my environment. And particularly, you know, as human beings, we are social creatures, you know, we're safeties in the herd, so to speak. Um, and, you know, for people who are neurodivergent, often getting that repetitive social rejection cues mm. um, can make it really difficult to mm. feel regulated and safe in a social setting. Um, just one of the things you were saying before there too, you were saying that, you know, in the fight response as human beings, that's often when we get that emotion of anger or aggression would you say that, you know, the flight response is more when we feel anxious or panicked and the freeze response, the feelings around that would m- might be, you know, depression, apathy, you know, fatigue, yep, yeah, hopeless, absolutely. all of that. There's mm. nothing I can do. Mm. I can't escape. So feeling helpless and hopeless mm. is part of that freeze response. Um, and also just having that brain fog and not really being able to mm. think or do anything to problem solve yeah. to get out of that situation. Yeah, everything is on that low power mode almost. Um, and it seems like that's kind of logical in the sense of why someone in a freeze mode might experience dissociation mm. um, because those kind of areas of the brain that aren't essential to survival are sort of shutting down, you know, functions associated with memory, attention, regulation, that type of thing. Yeah, it's going into power save mode mm. because like if you are in a situation where Um, you're exposed to T-traumas every day. So for some people that could be a domestic violence situation Mm. even. Um, It doesn't make sense to go into that fight or flight response all the time because that's like a massive outpouring of energy for the body. And, you know, people are normally quite exhausted after being in that sort of mode, I guess. So, yeah, that power saver mode really is going into freeze and conserving your energy and dissociating from what's going on. Mm. Um, And that's, yeah, it's like helping people survive and get through that situation and bide their time till they can leave or get out. Um, or their life circumstances change. Or, yeah, or, the circumstances yeah. change and they're, they're able to get out of that survival mode mm. and start going into thrival. Thrival. Yeah, thriving. <laughs> I love it. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, with the fight or flight response, that's when our brains and bodies kind of feel like the problem can still be solved or we have agency to yep. solve or fix that problem. Yep. And then our freeze mode is when, our brains are sort of like, actually, no, we don't. Um, And I can imagine that people who have had chronic trauma experiences, um, maybe, and you can kind of correct me on this, Monique, if this isn't the case, but I would imagine that they might be more prone to actually just go into freeze mode Mm -hmm. whenever something stressful or overwhelming or, you Mm -hmm. know, dangerous crops up. Yep. Yeah, that's correct. Mm. So, yeah, I think um, people do sometimes underestimate the effect that um, trauma has because it also does affect the physical body a lot. Um, So you can imagine being 
you know, chronically stuck in a state of freeze, actually it does, you know, even though it's power save mode, it still takes up more energy over time than being in that state of feeling safe and socially Mm. connected and same with fight or flight. So over time, um, people can actually, I guess, get drained in their physical resources. And there is a link between, um, chronic trauma and, um, yeah, negative effects on your health, such as autoimmune disease. And there is a study that's really interesting to look into. Um, that's called the ACE study, the adverse childhood event study. Um, and it was done in America in like the nineties. Um, but they followed a bunch of people, um, like over several years and got them to look at like how many, adverse childhood events were they exposed to when they were under the age of 18 and then followed up their health um, and mental health um, throughout like adulthood. And it was, I think, one of the first studies to really link, um, you know, negative events in childhood to like ongoing impact to your health and your mental health. Mm. Um, Yeah. So in the study, um, there's 10 questions and they explore different aspects of negative events Um, And the idea is if you're exposed to those under the age of 18, that your nervous system, your brain is more vulnerable um, because often, you know, children can't, you know, leave a situation. um, Whereas as other adults, we have more control um, of our environment, you know, in some situations, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, So the ACE study found some interesting results that correlated things like thyroid disease, diabetes, asthma, headaches, ulcers, multiple sclerosis, lupus, irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, heart disease, cancer, and lung disease um, to, yeah, experiencing negative events in childhood. And so, they found that the more negative events you experience, so say if you scored like six out of 10 rather mm. than like one or two out of 10, the the higher the chance of actually having a, an effect on your physical health there mm. was. Mm. Um, and then it was the same for mental health effects. So like a lot more risk of, you know, being depressed. There was actually a higher risk of experiencing chronic pain, um, increased risk of suicide um, and anxiety um so yeah it's it's kind of like quite an effect um it's interesting because the study also found that women were 50 percent more likely than men to have experienced um a higher amount of adverse childhood events um and they were more at risk for severe autoimmune disease so women kind of are biologically more at risk from chronic stress and that has to do with our hormones Um, Mm -hmm. so we have a lot more complicated fluctuating hormonal process than men do men have the same hormonal cycle like you know that happens in a 24-hour cycle the same every day but women's is like a lot more complicated and Mm. you know we are more at risk from things like autoimmune disease Mm. also I, i guess you know women are more likely to experience those kind of adverse or traumatic events just by virtue of being a woman Mm. in the world. Mm. Um, So it sounds like those two things are sort of compounding each Mm. other. Absolutely. So it's not all doom and gloom though because they did find in a later study that if you had positive childhood experiences um, that that somewhat like helped to mitigate the effects of also having the negative Mm. childhood experiences. So some of the positive childhood experiences were in the study, being able to like feeling like you were able to talk to your family about your feelings, feeling like your family stood by you during Mm -hmm. difficult times, enjoying participating in community traditions, feeling a sense of belonging in high school, Mm. feeling supported by friends, feeling safe and protected by an adult in your home and having at least two non-parent adults who took a genuine interest in you, such yeah. as like a relative or maybe like a sports coach or something like that. Yeah. And I guess, you know, for neurodivergent women, a lot of those things that you read out are not things that they have experienced Um often quite the opposite. Mm. And so I wonder if, uh, you know, part of the sort of picture when it comes to neurodivergence, women and trauma is that 
neurodivergent women, not only are they maybe more likely to experience traumatic events um, and little t traumas, um, but they're also not getting that protective effect of experiencing positive community relationship, positive community building, um, you know, feeling that kind of seen and liked and respected, um, which we know can protect against, you know, Mm. opposite experiences. Yeah, those experiences help keep our nervous system in that safe and socially connected space and help us regulate ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And even just having like the muscle memory almost of of feeling that, it's really hard to put yourself in that space um, if you don't actually know what that would look like, Mm. right? And we see this, you know, in people who um, maybe have, you know, attachment issues or, or issues in, you know, relationship building, things like that. And then they're adults and they're having relationship problems. Um, and they might say, oh, I really want to be able to be open or vulnerable or to tolerate this feeling that my partner is coming to me with, but I just don't know how, like I literally don't know how that would feel in my body. Cause mm-hmm. I've never felt that before. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people will come to me, um, in adulthood and some people again in their 40s 50s 60s and they've never had an experience of feeling safe Mm. in their body yeah Mm. that like felt experience yeah yeah so it sounds like to me from what we've chatted about today something that i think people might not be as aware of is the magnitude of the impact of trauma, um, you know, all different types of trauma and how that actually affects how we carry ourselves in the world, how we feel about our own experiences and our relationship with ourselves as well as relationship with other people. Yeah, and a lot of health professionals, um, like even doctors and stuff like that, aren't actually aware of the link between trauma and physical health mm, mm. Um, and the ACE study. Um So, yeah, a really good way of, I guess, spreading that awareness is to go look at the study yourself and actually to show your GP the study and make them aware of that link between trauma and physical health. But also, you know, be your own advocate, go and talk to your GP about the impact of trauma with neurodiversity Um, Mm. because, yeah, unfortunately, (laughs) you know, we might need to be educating others so that they're more aware of this. And I think it's important to just keep in mind that even if you have experienced trauma, whether that be big T, little T, ongoing trauma, there is hope, you know, there is treatment available Um, It's a journey, um, but you can recover from trauma um, and it's doable. So thanks for listening today, guys. Yes, thanks for joining in and listening to us on the podcast discussing trauma and neurodivergence. If you'd like to, uh, we'll be posting about our episodes on our Facebook and Instagram page. So have a look, like and share. Um, We still have our petition for adults with ADHD around access to medication going. It'd be great to sign and share that as well.